I don't know if you like dogs. I have a dog, and uh, you'll notice up on the screen, my dog looks like this dog. This isn't my exact dog, but it's similar. It's about 100 pounds. And last week I was out walking the dog. It was kind of drizzling, so I put on my raincoat. And uh, I'm kind of in a development. It's not a big development. And uh, while I was walking the dog, I noticed all of a sudden, about 100 yards away, another small chihuahua turned the corner. And it was headed right towards me and towards my dog. Now, I know the neighbor who owns this dog, and this dog is not scared of anything. This dog is very, very aggressive. And so the dog was headed towards me at mock speed. And as soon as it got up to my dog, it immediately confronted my dog. Its teeth came out, and my dog's just looking down at it. And it did nothing. And this little dog wasn't scared at all to confront my large dog. And I thought, what a great illustration for the text that we're going to be looking at this morning in Galatians chapter 2. You have two top dogs that are going to get in a confrontation. One was not a small dog. One was not a little dog. They were both big dogs, Peter and Paul. And so if you turn to Galatians chapter 2 this morning, we want to look at the clash of the titans. We're going to see two titan spiritual men. They're going to have a confrontation with one another. Galatians chapter 2 we want to look at specifically verses 11 through 21 as we finish out this chapter. For those of you who are visiting, we're going through the book of Galatians now at Calvary Chapel. And in this particular section, we're going to learn about how the Apostle Paul is going to confront Peter, one of the pillars of the church, which is going to serve as one of his arguments that you are saved by faith alone. Now, if you'll notice the map up on the screen, you'll see Antioch. You'll notice it on the right side there. Antioch was the sending church. That's where Paul was sent out on his first missionary journey. And him and Barnabas traveled to Cyprus. And then they went up to that area. You'll notice where there's Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. That was the Galatia area. It was in southern Galatia. It was a region. And the apostle Paul on his first missionary journey planted churches there. And basically he told them, when he came into that region, how to be saved. He gave them, as I've said before, the organic gospel. What is the organic gospel? It is the gospel with no preservatives and no additives. You say, well, what's that? Simply this, you are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by good works. That's the organic gospel. Whenever you say it's faith plus whatever else you got to do, you got to be baptized, you got to keep these rules and regulations, you got to go to church, all of those things are adding to the gospel, they're additives and they're preservatives. And so the apostle Paul went into Galatia and he preached this organic gospel and the Galatians came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, as soon as Paul left, false teachers, which they would often do, they came into Galatia and they basically undermined Paul's apostolic authority. They said Paul was not a legitimate apostle. They also said faith in Jesus, like Paul said, is good, but it's not enough. These Judaizers, and the reason why they're called Judaizers is because they wanted to impose Judaism on these Gentiles. They came in and they said faith in Jesus Christ is good, but it's not enough. You got to become Jewish first. You got to keep the law of Moses, you got to be circumcised, and you got to keep all the rules, the feasts, and the festivals that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And if you don't, you cannot be saved. Well, obviously, they were beginning to confuse the Galatian Christians because 
they had heard a different gospel. And so Paul in chapter 1 says very, very strongly in no uncertain terms, if anyone preaches a gospel that's not organic, that's not by faith alone in Jesus Christ, he says, let that person be cursed. In fact, you only have two ways of salvation. If you notice the diagram up on the screen, all religions, all cults fall into one of these two categories. Up at the top, they say you must have faith in whatever system they believe in plus good works, and that will result in salvation. Well, the Bible doesn't teach this. This is what the Judaizers were teaching. The Bible says you're saved by faith alone. It results in salvation, and then good works are a byproduct. See, we're not saying good works are not important. What we're saying is good works are not a requirement for salvation. Good works are a result of salvation. Faith is the root. Good works are the fruit. And you see, the Judaizers were undermining this message and basically saying that you're saved by faith and works. And so the Apostle Paul has to pick up his pen when he catches wind of this, and he has to write the Galatian Christians in that region. And in his letter, he basically takes on these false teachers. He denounces them. And what he does is he gives several arguments to try to convince the Galatians not to buy in to this message that you must first become Jewish in order to be saved. Now, let me review what we've looked at in the last several weeks in chapters 1 and part of chapter 2. The first argument that Paul uses to basically say that we're saved by faith alone and not by good works is this. Paul says he is a legitimate apostle. He was called directly by Jesus Christ. He was not called by a man to be an apostle or no denomination or no group called him. He was called directly by Christ to be an apostle. You say, why is that important? Well, as an apostle, he received direct revelation from God. He got his message from Christ as an apostle. And so if they could undermine his apostleship and say he's not a genuine apostle, they could undermine his message. And so in chapter one, he says right at the outset, I'm a genuine apostle. Secondly, to prove that you're justified by faith alone and not by good works, he says Christ transformed him. He was once a person who preached work salvation. Paul was a legalistic Pharisee. He preached this work system, and he tried to stomp out Judaism, or rather Christianity. And what happened? Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, transformed him, and now he says in chapter 1, he said, Christ revealed himself to me, and I went from being this preacher of a work salvation to now a preacher of preaching faith alone in Jesus Christ. So right there, that's an indication that his message was genuine. And then he gives a third argument, and that is this. His gospel message that he got came directly from Jesus Christ. He did not get it from a man he did not get it from the other apostles. Remember in chapter 1, and we're reviewing here, he basically says, when I got saved, I went away into Arabia for how long? Three years, and it was there he was tutored by Christ. And so he says, I didn't consult with the other apostles to find out if my message was valid. He says, I first got it directly from Jesus Christ. I didn't consult with anybody else. And then in chapter 2, he gives one final argument. John talked about this last week, and that is this. The other apostles endorsed his message of faith alone, and they encouraged him to keep preaching it to the Gentiles. You see, that's significant because you have the pillars of the church, Peter, you have James, and the other disciples. 
they came along and they said, Paul, you are preaching the true message. And you know what they did? <clears throat> they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And they said, keep preaching that message. And that's significant because Peter, for example, hung around Jesus. He knew the message of salvation. And so for him to give Paul the right hand of fellowship and say, keep preaching that message is significant. Now for this morning in a verse that we're looking at in verse 11 through 21, Paul is going to give a fifth argument as to why we're saved by faith alone and not good works. And it is this. The Apostle Paul, in this section, confronts Peter, who's one of the pillars of the church. He's one of the 12 disciples. He's going to confront him and basically tell him <clears throat> he's out of line in preaching his message that you're not saved by faith alone. And you know what? Peter doesn't argue with Paul. Here is Peter, one of the 12 disciples and the pillar of the church, and yet the apostle Paul confronts him and basically tells him, you're out of line and you're not preaching the proper message. You're contradicting what you really believe. Now keep in mind, Peter believed you're saved by faith alone. And the reason why is Peter walked with Jesus. He knew the message. And you remember in Acts chapter 10, God revealed to him in a vision that he did accept Gentiles, that God was a God of all nations, and Peter got that message. So Peter knew clearly that you're saved by faith alone. But what happens in this section that we're looking at is Peter ends up contradicting by his behavior what he really believed. And so the Apostle Paul has to confront him publicly. I was listening to a commentator last week on TV, and he was having a debate with another person who took an opposing view on global warming. Now, this isn't a political statement that I'm making here. It's just an illustration. But this particular commentator was arguing with the person via satellite on this issue of global warming. And there's one particular politician that has come out and said he's for global warming, it's happening, and he denounced President Trump because Trump's not bringing it up enough. Well, this commentator said to his guest, he said, what's interesting to me, he said, is this politician that is for global warming, he ended up spending $300,000 last month on his airplane to fly from place to place. And you know what this commentator was doing? He was trying to show the contradiction between what this person believed and how they were behaving. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does with Peter here, is he confronts Peter and says, Peter, I know you believe in the gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ, the organic gospel, but your behavior is contradicting what you really believe. And so the Apostle Paul has to confront one of the pillars of the church. Now, in this confrontation, we learn several practical lessons. Let me give them to you this morning. The first thing we learn is we learn about confronting other people. We learn about confronting other people. Notice, if you will, verse 11. He says, but when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, Peter is uh, the Greek name, he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood what? Condemned. See, the Apostle Paul had to confront Peter because Peter was not acting in line with the gospel. He was guilty. And he says in verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James... Now, who were, the, who were the certain men from James? Well, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and supposedly these Judaizers 
who were false teachers and preaching this false message, they came to Antioch and they claimed that James sent them. James probably did not send them because James was the half-brother of Jesus. He came to Christ after the resurrection, and so they were using James as an excuse in order to give their false message. And he says, Peter, and by the way, he's doing this in front of everybody as he's confronting Peter. He says, prior to the coming of these Judaizers, Peter, you used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, remember, Jewish people did not eat with Gentiles because Gentiles were considered unclean. They didn't use their utensils. And the Jews hated the Gentiles so much that if they had to walk through Gentile territory, you know what they would do? When they crossed the border, they would shake the dust off their feet. That's how much they disdained the Gentiles. And so Peter here knew the gospel. He knew that God accepted Jewish people and Gentile people if they repented and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And you know what? Peter was eating with them in Antioch. He was having potluck dinners with them. He was eating ham sandwiches. And then what happens? But when these Judaizers came, he began to withdraw himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But notice what Paul did in verse 14. He confronts this. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, see, that's the issue. When somebody gets the gospel wrong, it has to be confronted in love. You cannot let that slide because people's eternal soul is at stake. And Paul knew if he did not confront this situation, there would be a fracture in the church. You would have two ways of salvation being promoted. One would be by faith alone, which is the organic gospel, or you would have this Judaistic gospel that basically added works. And Paul says, when I saw, verse 14, they weren't being straightforward, I said to Cephas or Peter in the presence of all of them, he had to confront them publicly or Peter publicly. He says, if you, Peter, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, you see, Peter was fraternizing with the Gentiles. He did away with the dietary laws. Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles. He was eating with them. He says, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? You know what Peter was doing? When he saw these Judaizers coming, he pulled away from his fellowship with the Gentiles. And you know what he's doing? He was sending mixed messages. Even though he believed in the organic gospel, he basically was contradicting it by his behavior. And so you know what the Apostle Paul does? He has to confront this because he realizes this is a significant issue. And so the first principle we learned this morning is about confrontation. Now, whenever you hear the word confrontation, it's sort of a foreboding word. It has teeth to it. None of us likes confrontation. We think of people fighting like my two, those two dogs that were getting into it. Not all confrontation is nasty. But listen, confrontation is a part of our life, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, but especially as Christians. There are times in our life where we have to deal with issues because typically whenever there's confrontation, it's over an issue, whether it be with your spouse whether it be with your children, maybe a coworker, maybe a friend, maybe somebody here at Calvary Chapel. Confrontation is not necessarily bad. It can end ugly, or it can be a means of growth. I know some of the greatest times of my growth have been that when people have pulled me aside and they've given me loving correction. 
Now, when it comes to confrontation, all of us respond in one of two ways. Either we're the type of personality that hates confrontation and conflict at all costs, and so we avoid it at all costs. We sweep problems under the carpet. Are you that type of person? Or you have some Christians, they think it's their ministry to confront everybody. You ever met them before where they want to go around in a self-righteous spirit pointing out everyone's fault? Obviously, we want to avoid both extremes. We are called to balance. Now, let me give you several suggestions with confrontation. Number one, confront the person face-to-face. You want to confront them in person. That's exactly what Paul does with Peter here. He speaks to him face-to-face. You know, typically texts and emails, that type of social media, Facebook, is not the place to do it. Secondly, when you deal with the area of confrontation, sometimes it's private and sometimes it's public. Now, most of the time, when we have to deal with our child or our spouse, or there's an issue that's bothering you, you're going to do it privately. The Bible says if you have a problem with your brother or sister, or there's something that's really bothering you, you're to go to the person privately, and you're to point out their fault or point out what's bothering you. You're not to go and gossip on Facebook. You're not to call 20 people getting their advice and spreading it. The Bible says go to them privately. Now, there are occasions, like in this occasion, because Peter's hypocrisy was public, therefore, Paul had to address it publicly. If I wrote a book and someone attacks my character or attacks my theology in that book, I have to respond in order to maintain my integrity because that person attacked me publicly, I have to respond publicly. There are times where we have to do that, but generally, we want to go to the person privately. And then finally, the Bible says when you deal with controversy or confrontation, you need to make sure it's over significant issues, weighty issues. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. We need to overlook offenses, insults, irritations. That's just a part of relationships. But if something gets in your craw and you cannot let it go, or something's really bothering you, you need to address it. Now, in this case, This was a significant enough issue because this was a foundational core doctrine of the Christian faith. There are a lot of doctrines that I'm not going to debate other Christians over. We may have good discussions, but you know what? We can agree to disagree. But when it comes to the core cardinal foundation doctrines of Christianity, you cannot negotiate those away. And one of them is the gospel message. And so Paul here had to address it and he had to confront it. Is there something in your life that you need to confront or are you remaining silent? Now, here's what the Bible says when it comes to confrontation. Galatians chapter six, verse one is very instructive for us. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, now, that doesn't mean if somebody sins one time, hey, what'd you get? Oh, you said that cuss word. Hey, that's wrong. He's not saying go around and point out everybody's sin. If they're caught in a sin, if they're in bondage, if they're entrapped, you who live by the Spirit, who are spiritual, should restore that person what? Gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You see, we're to go in a spirit of love. We're to go in a spirit of grace. If a brother or sister has wandered away from Christ, you say, well, Pastor Mike, that's why we hired you and Pastor John. No, it's part of the body of Christ. If you know people that have walked away from God, or maybe they've got sucked back into the world, you want to go to them in love and say, hey, I'm concerned about you. How can I pray for you? 
And you may challenge them in a spirit of love, but see, we all have that responsibility. And so the first lesson we learn from this confrontation with Peter and Paul is we learn how to confront other people. Secondly, I would have you note that we learn about the danger of seeking the approval of other people. Notice, if you will, verses 11 and 12, we see here why Peter compromised his convictions. When Cephas, verse 11, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, the Judaizers, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, here it is, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, and here's the reason why because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. You see, Peter compromised what he knew to be the organic gospel because he feared the party of the circumcision, the Judaizers. He wanted their approval more than he wanted God's approval. You say, why? Well, you have to understand that Peter was called primarily to the Jewish people to do evangelism among them. Paul was called to the Gentiles. And so Peter probably figured that If they saw him eating with the Gentiles, they would spread that and he would lose influence with the Jewish people. We don't know exactly why, but we know Peter struggled with this. Remember, he denied the Lord three times when he was confronted before the death of Christ. And so we learn this lesson of seeking the approval of other people. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be approved by other people. I mean, we all want to be sociably acceptable to other people. I mean, you could go to the extreme, extreme and say, I don't care what other people think, and that's an extreme. God has put an innate desire with all of us, in all of us to want to be liked. We want to be accepted, and there's nothing wrong with that. But let me tell you where it becomes a problem. When you and I seek the approval of other people to the point where we're willing to compromise our biblical convictions, we're willing to compromise truth and we're willing to compromise our ethics, our behavior. That's when we are putting the approval of man before the approval of God. And we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I've been tested in my life just as you have. Am I going to seek God's approval in this, or am I going to seek man's approval? I remember when I was in college, I recommitted my life to Jesus Christ. I was already a Christian. I got saved in high school. But my second year at college, I recommitted to the Lord. And I remember we'd come home for spring break. We'd also come home for Christmas break. And I don't remember which one it was, probably spring break. And I remember I was hanging out with my old buddies who were partiers. I used to party with them, go to the bars and corrals and do all that stuff. But I knew when I got home, I was going to have to make a decision. Am I going to be bold about my faith, not self-righteous, but bold, and tell them I cannot party anymore or go into the bars? And I remember we were all in a car. We were in a convertible. And one of them said, so Mike, you're not going to go to the bars with us anymore, huh? You're not going to drink with us anymore? And I remember feeling that sense of, what am I going to do here? Do I want their approval? Because listen, I had all my friends there, and I finally said, you know what? The Lord's changed me. I've committed my life to him, and I'm not going to go there anymore because that was part of the old man. I can't do that anymore. It doesn't please and honor the Lord. Now, there have been times where I've had opportunity in my life to speak up for Jesus, and I didn't. I tell you a lot of times about the many opportunities I get to share, and I do share in boldness. But there are plenty of times where, like you, I've struggled with wanting the approval 
of the person that I was sharing with. I knew God would prompted me, you know, when I used to have hair and I'd get a haircut, you know, the Lord would prompt me to share with the person and sometimes I wouldn't share with them. You see, we got to understand that we got to seek God's approval more than man's approval. Yes, we want to please other people, but if it causes me to compromise my convictions, biblical truth, or to compromise ethics. Here's a girl who the boyfriend's pressuring her to have sex before marriage, and she takes a stand and she says no. She doesn't want her boyfriend's approval more than God's. And so what happens is the relationship disintegrates. Sometimes when we do stand for God, there's going to be loss. And you know, we got to accept the fact that we're never going to please everybody. You see, that's the problem. Peter wanted to please the Gentiles, but he also wanted to please the Judaizers. And you know, it's a trap to try to please everybody. But see, we have to understand that we are accepted in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, because of who I am in Jesus Christ, I'm a child of God. I'm a salt. I'm light. All the things that God says about me, when I understand who I am in Jesus Christ, I need to renew my mind to that, and I need to develop convictions where I take a stand and I say, God, I want your approval more than I want man's approval. Because listen, other people's approval is fickle. And Jesus said the night before he was crucified, he said to the disciples in the upper room, he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. But you know what the church is doing today? We so desperately want the approval of the world, what we're doing is we're watering the gospel down. Now, I understand we got to bridge the culture. We got to reach the culture and speak their language. I get that. But we have to be careful we don't cross the line to where we want the world's approval rather than God's approval. And listen, when everybody speaks well of the church, there's a problem. You say, wait, I thought they were to speak well of us as Christians. In one sense, yes. In another sense, no because of our stand for Jesus Christ. It's not always popular to be a Christian. The Bible says the cross is an offense. He says that in Galatians chapter 6. So let me ask you a question. Are you involved in something now where you are compromising biblical convictions, you're compromising your ethics because you want man's approval rather than God's approval? Isn't it interesting that Paul didn't want man's approval? That's why he confronted Peter, because he was more concerned about the message of the gospel not being diluted than he was gaining the approval of the Judaizers. Well, there's a third lesson we learn from Peter's and Paul's confrontation, and that is this. We learn about the influence or damage of hypocrisy. We learn about the influence or damage of hypocrisy. Notice, if you will, verses 11 through 13. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And notice, because of Peter's compromise, look what it says in verse 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. You see, we see the deadly nature here of hypocritical living. Peter ended up compromising what he knew to be the truth. And what that did as a leader of the church, a pillar of the church, is it set a bad precedent for the others. That's why the Bible says God will judge teachers and leaders more strictly, because their leadership position and their role has influence on other people. 
And so we learn about here the danger and the effects of hypocrisy. Now, let's be honest. We're all hypocrites in this room. I hear sometimes people say, I'm not going to the church because the church is filled with hypocrites. I say, hey, come and join the crowd. Come and join us. You say, I'm not a hypocrite, Pastor Mike. Well, you have to distinguish between acts of hypocrisy and a lifestyle of hypocrisy. You know what a hypocrite is? It's someone who pretends to be something that they're not. They put on a mask. That's what the word hypocrite means in the Greek. It was used in in plays and acting because they would put on a mask. You're pretending to be something that you're not. Now, the the reality is we all commit acts of hypocrisy in here. We all know certain things, and we do the opposite at times. We're all guilty of that, but that's different than a lifestyle of hypocrisy. Now, Peter was a man of integrity. He wasn't a hypocrite as a lifestyle. Jesus is going to unmask the hypocrites who live in a lifestyle of hypocrisy. I remember when I was in college in the South in Alabama, everybody went to church like in South Carolina. And I remember I wasn't walking with the Lord at that time. And I went to the cafeteria to go get some lunch on Sunday afternoon. And uh, there was this particular girl there and uh, she was dressed up as if she had been to church. And I found out later that she actually did not go to church. What happened was she dressed up because she didn't want people to think that she did not go to church, and so she dressed up as if she had gone to church. You see, that's an act of hypocrisy, and we're all guilty of it at at times. But you know what we have to guard against is a lifestyle of hypocrisy, coming to church, praising Jesus, and then Monday through Saturday, we live contradictory to the gospel. Not that we're going to be perfect, but when you look at our life, Do people see genuineness? Do they see consistency? And do they see a desire for God? You see, non-believers, one of the things that they can handle is when you and I aren't perfect. Because you know what that communicates to them when you blow it on your job or even your children at home? When they see you blow it, you know what? People will show you grace because people are forgiving. But let me tell you what non-believers will sniff out and even your children and your spouse and your coworkers, they will sniff out a lifestyle. If you say you're a Christian and you have a bumper sticker that says, what would Jesus do and all this stuff, and you say, hey, I'm a Christian, but they see that you're cheating your job, you're always late, you're always using profanity, you're always doing things that are unethical, what happens is they see a contradiction between what you say and how you live. And you know what? That turns people away from God. And that's exactly what was going on here. They were following Peter's lead on this in terms of hypocrisy. Now, obviously, this was an act of hypocrisy. Peter was a genuine man of God, and we all fail. We all, at times, give in to things that we shouldn't give in. But as a lifestyle, would you say that you are genuine, or would you say that you're a hypocrite? Because Jesus said, on the day of judgment, he's going to unmask the hypocrites. He's going to unmask those who are not genuine. You see, we can fool other people, but we can't fool God. That's why Jesus said, don't separate the wheat from the tares. The tares look just like the wheat. He says, what I'm going to do on the day of judgment is I'm going to separate. There are people that look Christian, talk Christian, quack Christian, but in the end, they're not really following God like they should. And so we learn about hypocrisy. Well, there's a fourth lesson we learn from this confrontation of Peter and Paul, and that is justification is by faith alone, not works. Justification is by faith alone, not works. Now, after Paul confronts Peter here, 
what he's going to do in the presence of everybody. We don't know how big the crowd was, but after Paul confronts Peter with this, he basically addresses the group, and what he does is he affirms the organic gospel. He affirms that we're saved by faith alone and not works because he wants them to get it in their mind. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 15. He says, we are Jews by nature. He says, look, we were born Jewish. We were involved in all the Jewish ceremonies. We were raised in Judaism. He says, we're not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, that word sinners there is a term of derision because the Jewish people would call Gentiles sinners. It was a pejorative term. It was a term where they looked down on the person. And Paul says, look, we were raised Jewish. We're not sinners among the Gentiles, but even though we are Jewish and we've been given the law of God, look at verse 16, nevertheless, here's what we discovered as Jews. A man is not justified or made right with God by the works of the law. You cannot get saved by keeping God's law. God's law is not to save you. God's law is a mirror to expose your sin. He says later in Galatians 3 and 4, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. He says a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. There is not one person on this planet since Adam and Eve up until God consummates the ages, there will not be one person who will be in heaven who got there because of their good works. Not even Mother Teresa. I don't care how good a person is, the Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. Notice what he says in verse 21. He reiterates this, but he says it in a different way. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. He says, I don't cancel out the grace of God by trying to earn my way to heaven. Because listen, God's grace and good works, they're mutually exclusive. You can't claim God's grace and try to depend on good works to get you into heaven. It's one or the other. He says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, if I could be saved by my good works, then why did Christ have to die and grace is no longer grace? Grace basically says I can't earn it, I can't deserve it, God gives it to me as a free gift. But if I earn it, then God owes me something. And the Bible says God owes me nothing. But here's the point in this text. He mentions justification three times in this passage. We are justified by grace through faith. Now, what is this term? Paul uses it throughout his epistles. The word justification is a legal term. It's used in a court of law. And it basically means to declare verbally somebody no longer guilty of sin. The Bible says when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not depending on your good works to get you into heaven, at that moment in time when you have genuine faith, God declares you no longer guilty of sin. Justification is a one-time act. It's not a process. I'm not in the process of being justified. I either am justified or I'm not. Once you are justified, you cross over from death to life. Now, Here's a question that people often raise. If God is a holy God and he's a just God, how can he declare sinners no longer guilty of sin when in fact they are guilty of sin? 
Wouldn't that mean God is not just? It would be like if I was in a court as a judge and I said to a man who's clearly guilty of first-degree murder, if I said as the judge, I hereby declare you not guilty of sin, there would be an outrage in the court. If I declared that criminal not guilty of murder when in fact he was guilty, there would be such an outcry at the miscarriage of justice. So here's the question. How could God be a holy and just God and declare us not guilty of sin when we are guilty? Ah, here's the answer. Look at this diagram. Notice here, the Bible says when a believer or a person trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God takes his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and he imputes it to me. He takes my sin and my guilt, and he places it on Jesus. This is the great exchange. So when God sees me, who does he see? He sees Jesus. Look at the next slide. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God can look at me. He could see me clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when he sees Mike Nimmer, he says, Mike Nimmer, you have trusted in me as your Lord and Savior. I hereby declare you no longer guilty of sin. How, God? How can you do that? Because I've taken my son's perfect righteousness. I've imputed it to you. I've clothed you in it. And I've taken your sin and I've imputed it to my son. You see, that's the great exchange. And so when God sees me, he sees Jesus Christ. Listen, that's a great truth. That's why I get to heaven not on the basis of my performance, but on the basis of Christ's performance. I get to heaven not on the basis of my merit, but on the merits of Jesus Christ. And so God can still be just and declare me no longer guilty of sin and show me mercy at the same time. That's why at the cross, mercy and justice kissed one another. Because God can maintain his justice and he could show me mercy at the same time. See, this is what Martin Luther preached. Remember Martin Luther, the German monk? He was tortured in his soul for a long time because he wanted to do the right thing and he couldn't figure out, how do I get favor with God? What happened was he had just got done with his seminary degree, wasn't a believer, and he was going to go into law school. He visited his parents for the weekend, and as he was coming back to the university on horseback, a lightning bolt hit right near his horse. And Luther fell off his horse. And while he was falling off or hit the ground, he said, Saint Anne, I promise to go into a monastery. Because they believed in the saints. The Catholic Church was the only church. You couldn't leave the Catholic Church and go to Calvary Chapel. You couldn't leave the Catholic Church and go to First Press down the street. There was no First Press. There was only one monolithic church, and that was the Catholic church. So he committed himself to the monastery. His dad was furious. He wanted to be a lawyer. Well, he went into the Augustinian monastery, and Luther was tortured in his soul. And finally, one day, he was reading Romans 1.17 that says, the just shall live by faith. Boom, the lights went on. He believed in Jesus. He was justified. And you know the rest, what happened. He took 95 theses, 95 statements that he had against the Catholic Church. And you'll notice up on the billboard here, put the picture up there. You'll notice he nailed them to the church door at Wittenberg. This is where they debated ideas. He nailed the theses to the door, 95 statements. And listen, that took a lot of boldness. And one of the things that he said in his whole battle cry, is we are justified by faith alone, not good 
works. This letter was one of the letters that Martin Luther used as the basis. And you say, well, Mike, is this really important because this is history? Listen, you and I would not be here today if God didn't use Martin Luther to stand against the Catholic Church. He's the reason why Protestantism began to grow, is because he finally recovered the gospel message. It was eclipsed for a thousand years. There were lights of it. You had John Huss, you had Wycliffe, you had the Waldensians, you had a few groups that were preaching it, but by and large, it was suppressed, and Luther came out, and boom, the rest was history. So he says here, we're justified by faith. Have you been justified by faith? What are you depending on to get you into heaven? If you're depending on your goodness, your church attendance, baptism, the Bible says you won't make it to heaven. There's only one way to do that. You have to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The moment you do that, God justifies you. Well, there's one other lesson we learned this morning from Paul's confrontation of Peter, and that is this. We learned that faith alone is not a license for sin, but rather it's a motivation to live for God by the power of the Spirit. You see, someone's going to say as they accuse Paul, Paul, you're preaching license. All you got to do is believe in Jesus Christ. Yep, that's all you got to do. Well, well, I'll just, I'll take the gift of salvation and I'll live like the devil. Once saved, always saved. And so what they accuse Paul of, these Judaizers, is they basically said, Paul, you're promoting sin. And Christ is promoting sin. Because if you're claiming Christ gave you your message as an apostle and you got it directly from him... Paul, what you're doing is not only promoting sin, but you're making Christ out to be a promoter of sin. And Paul says, God forbid. And notice what he says here, verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, if I'm seeking to get saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? I mean, by teaching salvation by faith alone, am I promoting sin? He says, absolutely not in verse 17. Perish the thought. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. He says, look, I'm not going to try to rebuild the system that the Judaizers are preaching because you know what the temptation is? All I got to do is believe in Jesus to be saved. Somebody's going to say, well, you know what? That's a license for sin. So to keep people from abusing grace, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put them under law. By the way, churches do that today. After salvation, we we don't want you to sin, so we're going to put all these rules and regulations on you. Paul says, no, I'm not going back to that system. I'm not going to compromise the gospel because people may potentially abuse grace. Remember he said in Romans, Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Someone would take Paul's theology and abuse it. And Paul says, no. And then notice what he says in verse 19. For through the law, and here is where he says, I'm not going to abuse grace and live for sin. He says, through the law, I died to the law. What does he mean he died to the law? You don't die to the moral law of God. If you're a Christian, you're still called to obey God's law. Not to get saved, but to honor and please God. So what does he mean he died to the law? He died to the penalty of the law. The law says if you break the law, there's a consequence. If I speed, I get a ticket. If I murder, I go to jail. Well, in God's law, if you break his law, the wages of sin is what? Death. 
But you see, Jesus took my death penalty for me, therefore I am now dead to the law. I'm no longer under its penalty. He says, through the law I died to the law. Why? Here it is. Highlight this. So that I might live for God. Grace is not a license to sin. Faith alone in Jesus, the organic gospel, is not a license to go out and do what I want. He says, to the contrary, the old me died. He says, now I'm going to live for God. Being saved by grace is a motivation to live for the Lord. It's not to say, well, I'm saved now. Now I can live like the devil because I'm eternally secure. You say, well, Mike, how do you live for God? Well, we'll end with verse 20. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. The old me was crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Well, who's living, Paul? Christ lives in me through the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, the old man died. I am now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enables me to live for God and to keep his law, not to say, well, I'm saved by grace. Let me live like the devil. And listen, there are Christians today that we call it hyper grace. Well, I'm under God's grace, so it doesn't really matter how I live. No, it does matter. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I want you to notice as we close here, this particular diagram, this will help you understand when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Notice this sinner right here, the black heart represents sin. When you accept Jesus Christ by faith alone, what happens is the old you, the sinful you, the old man, is crucified with Christ. The Bible says when Christ died, I died. Not physically, but spiritually, the old man died. Then when Christ was buried after he died, I was buried with him. Then when Christ arose out of the grave, I arose as a new man. Notice the black heart, notice the white heart. You see, I've been transformed. I am so identified with Christ, whatever happened to Christ happened to me. When he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he arose, I arose. See, the old man died. If this old man died, why am I going to live for the old man? Paul says, no, salvation by faith alone is not a license for sin. The old man was crucified. Why would I live for the old man? Notice this slide here. Baptism pictures this reality. You see, I was crucified with Christ. When I get in the baptism water, that's me being crucified. I was buried with Christ. Me going under the water represents me being buried. When Christ was raised and I was raised with him, that symbolizes me coming up out of the water. You see, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is simply a picture of what happened to me at salvation. And so Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me through the Holy Spirit to empower me to live for God and not for the old man. So to the contrary, faith alone is not a license to sin. It's a license to live for God. And listen, as we close, notice this diagram right here. You're either living by your own strength. Next slide. You're either living by your own strength or you're living by the Spirit's strength to live the Christian life. See, the guy paddling, he's doing it in his own power, and once you become a Christian, you can't live the Christian life in your own strength. you got to live it by the power of the Holy Spirit, which represents the motor. And so what have we learned this morning? Clash of the Titans. 
two big dogs. The Apostle Paul had to confront Peter because Peter was compromising the gospel message. And we've learned about confronting others. Is there someone that God is asking you to talk to? Not harshly, but lovingly. We learn about the danger of seeking the approval of other people. Are you seeking the approval of others more than God? We learn about the influence or damage of hypocrisy. Are you genuine or are you living a hypocritical lifestyle? We learn that justification is by faith alone. It's not by works. And then finally, we learn that faith alone is not a license for sin. Rather, I'm crucified. The old me died. The Spirit now lives in me. Christ lives in me. He lives His life through me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not to sin, but to live for God. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know Christ? Are you justified? If not, pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. We thank you, Lord, for the organic gospel that the Apostle Paul gives us in Galatians. And Lord, what a glorious message it is, because Lord, if, if we had to depend on our good life like Muslims do, or like other religions, it's bondage, because you never know, ultimately, if we earn your favor. We never know if we've merited enough to gain salvation. And Lord, Christianity says it's already done. Everyone is even at the foot of the cross. We all come the same way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, we thank you for that gift of salvation that we cannot earn or deserve. It's simply by faith alone. And we thank you for Paul and his gumption to stand up to Peter one of the pillars of the church, one of the 12 disciples, and he confronts him and says, you're contradicting the gospel message. Stay true to the message. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, all you got to do is say, God, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I believe your son died for me and rose from the dead. And if you're willing to put your total trust in Jesus, the Bible says God will forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life. If you've never done that, talk to me after the service. Father, we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.